As followers of Jesus in the midst of another polarizing election season, we don't have the choice to walk away from our responsibility to change broken policies that are breaking our neighbors or to end relationships with our family and friends who might think differently than we do. That's why this season of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is exploring how we are to engage politics as citizens of the kingdom of God and the United States. It's going to be hard and messy, but it's holy work, and we're here for it all. Thanks for joining us for Peace in Politics, becoming everyday peacemakers in and outside of the voting booth. Oh boy, this is a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, Diana is electric uh, in all the ways that invite us to a better way to be human. Um, she's accessible and practical and also very challenging. And so this combo, I feel like is one that's gonna really equip us as everyday peacemakers with tangible tools. Like we can't scoot around this one with some like mental jujitsu. She's calling mm-hmm. us onto the, onto the streets. Yes, but she has that quality about her that's very much like, come alongside me. Mm. Like, she is very much like a companion. It's not, like, she speaks with authority, but she speaks with almost like an auntie energy. Yeah. Like, I've lived this, I've been here, like, listen to me, but also, like, do this alongside me. And she even says something to that effect towards the end of, like, you know, we can't just tell people, like, send an article to them and, like, you should do this. Like, they actually want to see you doing it, and they want to be invited into doing it. And from that, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so if I am volunteering at this home that I know that cares for women who are in crisis pregnancies, like I should volunteer, but I could also invite people to come with me instead of sure. just saying, here's how I'm responding to Roe v. Wade being overturned. I could say, or here's here's how you should respond. I, sh- I could say, here's how I'm responding. Come yeah. alongside me. And that feels like Jesus, you yeah. know? That's so, right. Yeah. yeah. She has a handout for us and yeah. is wanting to walk with us. And, and for you guys listening in, I mean, to have the opportunity to listen to someone who grew up, um, with a very a, a faith in politic, very integrated. I mean, she said things like she grew up in a space where she understood to serve country is to serve God. And that mm-hmm. led her into the military and her yeah. story in the military and her conversion there is amazing. We're going to get into that as well uh, in our time with Diana. So yeah. enjoy the interview. Hello, Everyday Peacemaking podcast listeners. There's two things with Global Immersion we wanted to let you know about. First, This podcast would not be happening if it wasn't for our Embers community. This is a collective of folks from all across the country and the world who give money every single month to help fund our everyday peacemaking resources like our monthly periodical called The Monthly Peace, our daily contemplative contemplative prayers, webinars, and this podcast. So uh, if you'd like to join this community of funders for five bucks a month or 500 bucks a month, we would be thrilled. You can follow the link in the show notes or go to our website, globalimmerse.org, to jump in on that. Second, we're about to open up applications for our 2023 leadership cohorts. Uh, these cohorts are designed for faith leaders who want to go on a journey of discovery in the intimate company of peers and trusted guides. We want to do the slow, hard work that leads to healing and renewed vision for who you are and I am and how we will collectively lead restoratively in the church of the future. These cohorts include in-person retreats, online learning, 
coaching, and immersive experiences. One, uh, the Journey of Hope cohort culminates in a trip to Northern Ireland to learn from uh, other peacemakers in that global context. And the other, uh, Journey Home, culminates with a pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago where we seek to confront the conflict within ourselves that inhibit our ability to lead towards equity and justice and peace. So, space is very limited. Jump on it and you can get more information and apply in the show notes or go to globalimmerse.org leaders. Hello, guests. Uh, we're so excited um, because we have Diana Ostrek with us. Um, Diana is my friend. Well, she's our friend, but she's, well, I feel like she's a little closer friend to me because she's here in Minnesota with me. She's a fellow peacemaker who was once a soldier and turned convicted and convinced peacemaker. And she's the author of Waging Peace. Um, you're going to love Diana's story of how she followed God's call to love her enemies. Um, on the battlefield of Iraq. Um, and she is a peacemaker who will definitely help us understand kind of the thrall of Christian nationalism, how she kind of got wrapped up in that and how Christ's call to peacemaking invited her into a kingdom way of thinking. And yeah, so welcome, Diana. I'm so glad that you are here chatting with us about peace and politics. Man, thank you so much for being here. I honestly, I kind of love it. I think this is really where we get to show up as our full selves and put love on display. So I know politics kind of makes people's neck gets a little tight, maybe get a little uh, mm-hmm. little nervous, but I'm so glad to be here and that you guys are bringing us all into this conversation. So thank you. Yeah. yeah so to kind of ground us in this conversation, we have just three definitions or assumptions that we're working with as we're chatting. So Diana, when we talk about peace, we're talking about like the holistic repair of relationships. So interpersonal, interpersonal, systemic. Um, We are talking about actual peacemaking. So it's that work of moving into conflict with the tools that we need to heal and transform. We're not interested in holding the status quo. We want to be disruptors for the sake of peace, disruptors for shalom. Um, And then when we talk about politics, we're not talking about like partisan arguing. We're not talking about like choosing a side and firing at one another. We're talking about the ordering of our society. Like how are we living together? What's the shared convictions that we have for us to move forward together? So those are kind of the three working assumptions that we have. And, and so with all of that in mind, um, I'm really curious, you know, the past few years have been really challenging and you're someone who has served in the military. So you have a unique perspective on some of the things that we have been talking about. Like I mentioned, like Christian nationalism. Tell us a little bit of your story. Um, how did you join the military? What did it mean for you to be, to be serving as a, in the military? for America. Tell us a little bit about how you entered into this. So I, I grew up in a cute little country Baptist church, you know, um, small town, Northern Minnesota. And there's probably, you know, the same 60 or 70 people in the pews. 
and I was a third generation army veteran. So this is pretty, you know, this is a mm. cultural thing, I think, you know, and so um, there's really no questions asked, you know, and ultimately, you know, to serve my country was to serve God. And there really wasn't any difference in that. And I think that, um, so ultimately, I think that I was just born and raised into this mindset by people who, you know, loved me and patted me on the back and taught me to love Jesus and, you know, gave me some juicy fruit gum after the service and baptized me. And I grew up in this way of thinking that really said, you know, that to, um, to ultimately take a life was to take a life for God. If I was taking a life for my country, then I was really taking a life for God, that my faith in my country, even so far as to take a life for it, was really taking a life for God. And these things were just so intertwined and connected, um, as connected as that flag was at the front mm-hmm. of the church, that to the left, there was the American flag, and to the right, there was um, the Christian flag, that these things were just things that I remember seeing um, before I could really remember, I was five years old on mm-hmm. up. And then when I went to, um, I wanted to be a medical missionary because in the Baptist tradition, if you were a lady, uh, there was really only two spots for you. You could play the piano, you could marry a pastor, really, if you want to do something exciting, or you could be a missionary and mm-hmm. go to fascinating places, preach the gospel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I, uh, didn't really think about like getting married. I want to do some stuff. So I definitely was going to be a missionary. I had a little, uh, sass happen in there, a little adventure. So, uh, I joined the military because my family had a lot of love, but not any money. Uh, nobody really had gone to college in my family. So this is pre-internet. I didn't really know how to do that. Um, so I joined the military, the guard in order to pay for college, but ultimately I wanted to be a medical missionary. <laughs> so, but I did drive a VW bug. So someone should have told me this was not going to be a good fit. <laughs> yeah, sounds troublesome. <laughs> I mean, someone should have said there was something peacenik happening inside <laughs> that girl. <laughs> yeah. 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 Nobody had that conversation with me. <laughs> so it's so fascinating because it's so fascinating because as a, I, I'm curious because as a woman in that context, in like that Christian nationalism type of context, you heard this invitation to fight for God and country, um, and you chose to go into the military to pay for school. So like there's, so there, and, and you were still honored within that context. Like your mm-hmm. church still honored and sent you out, even as a did, was that. Do you being a woman in the military, how did, how was that? How did that feel for you? Well, both my mother and my father were, had been in the military. And so, um, you know, though it was their choice that they didn't really tell me what it was going to be like, because um, the military was segregated at that time. Like mm-hmm. my mother, women were not allowed in the army. My mother was not allowed in the military. So me joining the military, I was one of the first 
women who was part of an integrated, integrated um, basic training. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of harm that happens to women Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of physical harm and a lot of uh, sexual assault. Because if you don't want women to be in part of your army, you do anything to them to make them leave. Um, so that's so, a little bit of, yeah. Okay, keep, keep going, keep going. Well, I mean, I mean, as you can tell, there's a lot of disconnects here. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of disconnects. Like, why would a lot of things be okay that really weren't yeah. okay? But, you know, I was 17 when I signed up and um, I wanted to go to college. And this is how I thought I could do it. Um, fast forward, you know, I was done with college. I had, I was pretty much done with my enlistment and then 9-11 happened and I ended up getting deployed to the Iraq war. And that is really where all my beliefs that I had really been handed to me and that I really held to be really true. Um, and I never met, uh, a Democrat till I was like in basic training. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Isn't that something? <laughs> I and, wow. and, and, and here's the thing. I don't think many of us meet different kinds of people than the culture that we're yeah. handed yeah. until we leave home and leave our bubbles. And basic training was really the place that I met America. Mm-hmm. Really mm-hmm. beautiful place to actually meet America. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was really, really amazing. Um, so I get deployed and all of a sudden I believe A, B, C, and D that my fundamentalist faith taught me, but all of a sudden I'm in a place where these beliefs are going to tell me that I need to take a life and everything in me knows that even though I believe these things and I signed up to do these things and I have to do these things, something in me is pushing back. And I hear this voice of God say, but I love them, Diana. I love them too. And I knew it. And so I just took the bullets out of my weapon and decided that no matter what would happen to me, military prison, retribution from my fellow soldiers, I didn't care what happened. Like I would never take a life between me and God. And that's where my allegiance changed. And I truly believe, I call that my desert baptism because that's the first Mm. time I really became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first mm. and my country second. Mm. That's when I became fully alive. And that, um, that's what, that's when I became a peacemaker. And I think that changed my life. I really think like God saved my life from myself. Mm. Um, and so that's why I really believe that right now, um, people are not good people and bad people. We're really just been handed a whole set of beliefs by people that love us. And the way we move forward is just by um, believing the best in each other and asking each other better questions and giving each other better invitations. Mm. Like we can't get stuck on where we're at. We've all been given a whole set of things, but we got to choose where we're going to be a year from now and five years from now. So how has your experience that desert baptism and now you are now you're firmly committed to living as a peacemaker but we don't live in very peaceful times when it comes to politics it feels so contentious and how has your service and your baptism 
and now your leadership in the space. How has that influenced the way you engage with politics? Well, one, it's changed. Um, one, I show up. So I'm committed. And because I come from peacemaking, from war making, I'm really practical. Like I don't, I, I don't really get into touchy feely stuff. And sure, you know, you guys are both pastors and really smart, no theology, but like, I'm just straight like violence. So I'm like, Hey, I'm taught to keep people alive. So I think that violence is happening in our community. And I'm also um, a nurse and I was a, con- a hospice and a cancer nurse. So death and violence is happening. So mm-hmm. I really want to show up and, and stop violence. So kids who can't eat, that's violence. And I think that um, sexual assault is violence. And I know that domestic, so I really think like there are practical ways that we got to show up in our community. Um, And Dr. Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's wife said, starving a kid is violence. Um, Kids not getting educated is violence. And so I'm just super practical. I'm like, man, I'm going to show up and make sure that our communities people who agree with me and people who don't, I don't care, but I think that all of our kids really, really deserve to grow up in a community where all of us are making sure that violence isn't harming them. And if we can do that, we are going to win each other because if you care for my kid, I don't care if I like you, I will love you. If you go to bat for my kid, I will care for you forever. Like, I think this is how we start to rebuild our bridges Mm. is that we show up and make sure like I can be happy that my kid has dinner tonight, but I cannot rest or have joy until I know every kid in my city has dinner tonight. And so, Mm. um, so my family really has committed to showing up for my unsheltered neighbors Um, And so that's just really practical and it works and we can work for it. And so I think we don't need any more hashtag warriors, but we need people to show up and say like, things aren't okay, but we all want things to be better. And if we each commit to something, um, nine times out of 10, all of us want things to be a little better and we don't have to agree on 27 things to say, I think we do want our schools to be a little bit safer. How are we going to do this? Let's just take like one thing. We don't have to do 10 things together, but we do want our kids to be a little bit safer this year. When you, um, I have a bunch more questions about your story and what we can come back to that. But since we're talking about the political side of things and, and the systems change, seeing it on a systemic level, you know, you were in the military, you were proximate with those soldiers who many of whom I'm sure were impacted by experiences in war, uh, whether it's physical or mental, a bit is we're in the midterm season. Now we're talking about policy change for you as a vet. Do you go to the voting booth with, with, uh, like kingdom values in mind that actually can benefit that community you were part of? Yeah. And, And how do we, how do you help us think about that? So the number one thing that, I am looking to do 
And I think that works as a veteran. And well, the number one thing I think you can do if you want to support veterans and that I am doing and I'm asking people to do is to is to vote for universal health care because mm. veterans, including myself, need health care and we are trying to get it and we're being denied left and right, mm. left and right. And the average age of a veteran who has who was deployed to the post 9-11 wars of Afghanistan and Iraq is only 37. So if veterans could just get healthcare when they need it and they stopped having to be going through the hoops and getting denied for every little thing. And let me tell you, it is really tough. And if their families and their kids could just get healthcare, it would take away so much of the stress. And already having PTSD or having all these things happen makes it doubly hard to navigate life. Um, So if them and their families could just get healthcare when they needed it, I'm telling you, it would help so much. So it is dignifying to just get healthcare when you need it and not to have to jump through these hoops and then get denied. And then as you get older, the next thing happens and then you have to do it again. Um, it is really, really harmful how that system is working. Um, and if you want to help mental health people work for universal health care, that's really helpful. If you want to help, um, kids work for universal health care. Um, and I also think that, uh, I'm a third generation army veteran and almost every, and I'm working that my kids do not go to a war because Mm. so far I'm the third generation to go. And so the United States has had 17 years of peace in our 250 year history, roughly. And so if we can increase um, the living standard and preempt the next war, because people are doing okay that they don't have to sign up Mm -hmm. that will be peace to me like i really want to interrupt my family's legacy of having every generation go to a war because it affects them and being parented um i know what affects my kids i know myself having ptsd is not the easiest on my sons Mm -hmm. and i know me being raised by my two parents was not the easiest by them being in the military. So um, when I go to the polls and when I talk to people, I'm not so, I'm not going to get hung up on what party you're registered for. I'm going to ask you, what are you working for? Mm. What are you wanting to happen in your community? Because we have to be good ancestors and you have to be able to tell your kids what you showed up for. And if you showed up for nothing but yourself, That in itself is a receipt. Mm -hmm. And I am unwilling to tell my kids that I didn't invest Mm -hmm. in making sure that my neighbors in my community had shelter when they hit a rough time or they had medicine when they needed it. Like this is our chance to put love on display when we go to the polls. And I'm excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like people need hope. And this is the time we show up. And be courageous with our love. Mm-hmm. So, 
Thank you for saying that piece about, so my little bit about my story is that my dad was a Marine for 20 years and he left, he, when I was born. So he, cause he didn't, super patriarchal. He had a son before me, but he, but when he found out that my mom was having a daughter, he was like, I don't want to be in the military and have a daughter. <clears throat> I want to be with my daughter. So anyway, but my dad has really, really bad PTSD that uh, because he was, he did two tours in Vietnam and uh, it, it, it has affected my, my siblings and I talk about like how dad's time with the Marines has so deeply affected our family in every single angle. And it's like, it's so difficult to talk to him about it because I feel like with vets, or at least with my dad, there's this shame of it. And especially my dad was a black man in the Marines. And so he had to work extra hard. He was a master gunnery sergeant. So he had to work extra hard for respect. And so like, he didn't want to acknowledge that like, this was hard and traumatizing. And like, it has really like, when I hear you say that you want to make sure that the next generation, that you're raising the next, prevent, protecting the next generation from, ha from having to go to war, I don't just hear you say like, oh, I, I am against war because I think it's bad to kill people. Or I, I don't just hear you say that. I hear you say, I'm trying to protect the next generation from experiencing trauma because we here on, on state side are not providing the kind of care or standard of living because my dad went into the military for school. His dad went into the military for school. My brother went into the military for school. He told me directly, like, I don't want you to go into the military for school mm. for that exact reason. So it's it's real. And I just want to say thank you for bringing that human aspect to this conversation. Yeah, It's not just glory and guns and God bless America. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ugliness on the, on the other, underside of it. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Don, did you have some thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah. just you sharing that just brought up the memory of standing outside my front door with my mom and two sisters as we waved goodbye to my dad when he was during the first Gulf War. He was gone for a year and because he was in the army for like 30 years. And and even that that memory is seared. And then that year of sleeping around my mom's bed, all of us, because we we were like a family without dad for a year and just mm. all the uncertainty around that. So you're, you're telling that Oshita just brought that up for me um, as well. But man, it does, doesn't impact all of us. Maybe we should talk about that more. Holy smokes. Um, and that's not even talking about the, the killing someone, Diana, like you mentioned, you know, pulling those bullets out of the gun. Um, your story is so compelling to me. My, my question here is um, you chose to walk away from a vocation that your upbringing said was synonymous with being faithful to God to love country was to love God to kill for country was to kill for God. You disarmed your weapon and walked away. What was that like for you in your own community? Because that your sense of identity is shaped by your community. And now you're saying to your community, I don't believe in that. And I'm just curious, like, how was that? And did you like were fingers being pointed at you with sh shame being leveraged? Um, invite us into that. Well, being really honest, I think when I did it, you know, it was just survivability. You know, when you look at something, um, you you do what you need to do to survive, and I think in God's like we all get a choice, you know, 
And I think for me to survive, it was saying yes to life and not Mm -hmm. death. Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. be part of the kingdom of death and live. Mm -hmm. But coming out of that, it's been a real only 20 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because allegiance is also required of us and i think that is the that is the thrum underneath all of what we're seeing people require allegiance or they will take the pound of flesh Mm. that is why people are staying in these political camps because it's allegiance and i think once you won't give it to them you don't belong And there are very few churches that I can stand in and say out loud, I will not kill for this country and be welcomed in. Mm. And that is my pound of flesh. And that is Mm because my allegiance is to the kingdom of life and love. And, And it's lonely. And I won't ever be welcome because some people can't hold two things that says... You can disagree with me and I can still love you. Like they just can't. And there are limits to humans' ability to love. And that's why I think I believe in this bigness of God, that there's mm-hmm. something beyond humans that they that God can love us in our full in like our littleness and our bigness. Because when you won't kill for somebody when you won't say them and everybody else second when you're like nope there's not a single person that I will choose them above you mm. you don't belong there's yeah. a tribalness yeah that when you won't join that you are dead to them yeah, yeah. and it's a lonely place um mm. but there's also a freedom to that that when you know that you know that you know that you will never harm another person. There's a freedom to live like you have never lived. Mm. Um, and that's the thing that, I, that I've given my sons mm. is that like no matter what happens or where they are, they are free yeah. to give and never take a life. And there is something about that yeah. that makes you sleep and live in a courageous way that feels freeing that I never had when I had a weapon. So say more about that freedom. I think I understand what you mean by that. So like when we lived in Boston and I've I've written about this in my first book, when we lived in Boston and the two brothers who, um, who were responsible for the, for the marathon, the the Boston marathon bombing Mm -hmm. were running around. um, They were fleeing the police. They were actually, they fled into an adjacent neighborhood to where we lived. Um, and so they they locked down the whole community, that neighborhood, and then the neighborhood surrounding them so they can search for those boys. And I had a moment in that night, I was up all night just praying. And I was like going through my house being like, okay, what do I, what can I grab to protect my family? Like, mm-hmm. like, okay, if I, if I grab like bug spray and I spray them in, in the eyes, okay, then what do I do next? Do I kick them? Do I, like, I was like going through it all in my mind. And then I, then every time, every scenario, I was like, either I, I horribly hurt this person and I have to deal with this, with, with the shame and the trauma of that, or I escalate the violence and then worse things happen for me and mm-hmm. my family. 
And I sense the spirit say to me, why do you need anything, Oshida? And mm-hmm. at that moment, I was like, I, if they come to my door and if they are violent, like I will, I will, I will do my best to disarm. I will, I will not escalate. So I'll put down whatever things I wanted to have to protect myself and, and do my best to be like, do you need water? Like, like, mm-hmm. so I just kind of went through all of this sort of like humanizing things I could possibly wow. do that night. And I felt like that was the, that, that, that was the freedom for me of like, you know what, I am now free to love them and look at them as people and not live in the fear. So my love is greater than my fear. So mm-hmm. that's what that, so when you say that, that's what that means for me, but I want to hear more from you by what you mean when you say there's freedom, like you're, okay. you're set free. Well, that's really incredible what you did. Cause I think like in a war, it's just different because when you know you can like be killed by lunch, there's just this thing where like you, there is a freedom that just said, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Like, I don't know what will come at me, but I get to decide how I will respond. Mm. And there is a freedom in that decision. Cause otherwise like it's so false that we can manage what life gives us. Like, and also being a cancer and a hospice nurse, it's like, you know what? We don't get to decide what life gives us. Like, that's just false. We can't be smart enough. We can't protect our kids. Like, the only thing we get to do is we get to show up today and decide how we're going to love and what that is going to look like. Um, and so I think just choosing to lay down my violence and say, like, I'm not going to do that that was just my decision um, to follow Jesus in that thing. Cause there's like, Jesus had not one act of violence in him. Like he went through the whole world and I felt like that was just the freedom. That was really different than what I grew up with. You know, my like growing up was like, you know, you gotta like hit first before someone hits you and, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, like that whole mentality. And I'm like that. So I think just deciding not to do that, gave me the freedom to decide how I was going to show up. And there was a piece in that that just changed my trajectory. And it kind of, I kind of summed it up with like, I had this experience with this woman, this Iraqi grandma in the war. And she just really like made me, she kind of exemplified this whole idea that like, you can either go through life with this posture of protecting yourself, of acting like someone's always going to take something from you. Or you could go through life believing that God gave you something extravagant to give. And it's kind of like that verse that talks about like the lens with your eye. Like if you have light in your eye, that's how you're going to see everything. And if your Mm. eyes are dark, you're always just going to see darkness. Yeah. And so I just kind of like had this transformational thing about violence. That violence was the darkness. But God had shown me like, nope, I'm going to walk through life saying I got something extravagant to give. And so that's kind of the way that I think we can show up with politics, because politics is just us showing up in our communities, saying everybody and kind of my definition, my working short term of like peace is that everybody gets a seat at the table and everybody gets to have what they need to thrive. So if I don't get so if I don't get to like vote anybody off the island, then I have to include Everybody gets a seat at the table and everybody gets to have what they need to thrive. So everybody's kids matter, whether you're sheltered or unsheltered, addicted or not addicted. 
old or young, like everybody's here, Republican, Democrat, independent. Um, there's always this cannabis write-in group. Have you noticed that on all the stuff? I'm like, guys, I didn't know this is such like, a big deal to you, but I guess you're loud and proud. Let's, Let's do it. You know? okay. So just making sure that as a village and as a community, like everybody gets what they need and showing up and saying love is it's let's put our love in public like let's not leave a single kid behind so if you really need your kid to go to private school because they have needs then you then make sure that you're putting your money into some other kid getting to have the same services like we Mm -hmm. cannot leave anybody's kid behind if your kid loves soccer make sure that you're making sure a kid who doesn't have the money gets to play soccer too like it's the yeah. both and we don't good. run ahead and take without making sure we're bringing everybody with us because that that is community. But that sounds like what you are describing sounds so good, but it sounds like something that we have to bit by bit relationally and conversation with the people around us convince them of that especially for those who they hear what you're saying and they're like but you didn't work hard enough to afford to be able to afford your kid to go into a public a private school and I did so like my kids should be able to go into a private school because I worked hard enough um so I feel like what I what I'm hearing you say is that we need to invite everybody into this picture, this this identity or this call into usness. But I think that, that that starts us voting in such a way that we create a village. That starts with us having conversations with people in our real lives about the the problems and the policies that we want to see, the problems that we see and the policies we want to see enact. Which means we have to do this work on a relational level, like. We have to cast this vision across coffee tables and dining room tables on long walks. So like, how do you engage with conversations with people who don't share that same, like Cornell West, you know, quote of justice is what love love looks like in public. How do you do that relationally with people who disagree with you? Well, so I kind of, my like little short thing is my definition of like waging peace is activating justice and instigating joy by committing small acts of courage. So the activating justice part is like by actually doing the voting, doing the work and instigating joy is bringing people with, and that small acts of courage. That's what you're talking about right there. That acts of courage is when you actually like have that conversation with that person Mm -hmm. who definitely doesn't believe the same thing and definitely you can tell it's going to make them uncomfortable when you're like oh so what else are you doing then it's cool because in my city there's all these like private schools you know and it's like well that's nice that public schools don't work for your child because they need special things but like isn't that leaving out everybody else's kids? There's probably 27 other kids who have reading issues and could really use that small class size and personal attention that your child is getting. Yeah. Um, so one, I think we got to like be doing it. Like we have to be doing it. So when you have that conversation with a person, you're not giving them an article that you read. You're giving them a personal experience that says, yeah. hey, yes, so through. when I was volunteering at 
I volunteer um, at this place called Olive Branch and I was hanging out with this family. She said, this is how it worked for her because I really do believe in the higher good in people. So when they yeah. start to hear your experiences with this family who is unsheltered because A, B, C, and D, and it's totally not what they were thinking about, you're sharing real experiences in our home community and not an article that you yeah. read. So That's I good. think, and that changes people because when, and even like, um, there is a white supremacist group that was recruiting in our city. And I went around and put up some posters. I asked some local businesses and I walked in and said, oh, hey, will you put this up? They're like, what do you mean that happened here? And I was like, oh, yeah, there it, it, it happened. They're like, what do you mean in our town? I'm like, yes, <laughs> wow. in our town, in the park, they're recruiting. They're like, I can't believe that here. I, well, I will put up in this in the local hardware store, which I wasn't so sure they would put up this poster. So I think when we engage in things and then have the conversation we're giving people real experiences and that changes people because they couldn't say oh that's not a real news article or that happened way across the country that's that only happens in big cities i was giving them a real experience and they know me so they know diana who buys pet things from their hardware store every other saturday you know what i mean so i think if we do this work and are actually invested in the work in our city, then when we have the conversation, those actual experiences are going to change them. I, I love, go ahead, well, go ahead, John. <laughs> yeah, I just, um, I'm so compelled by that because what that requires is a level of proximity with those that may or may not think differently than us. And I think it's easy in today's culture and society to be like, mic drop social media, fingers pointing at people you disagree with. And what that creates, it seems, is this economy of shame. And mm-hmm. is anything I've learned from my therapist, shame doesn't do any good. Like it doesn't no. change hearts or minds. What, what people need are invitations to a better way. And, and so I guess I'm curious is in this, I know we're wrapping up here, but when you think about your hometown, you think about the church you grew up in, you described earlier, this community that you're still to some degree connected with, what is, what does it look like for us to invite people to not just point and say you're wrong with how you think, but to invite people into a community that's actually living out an alternative um, that's better? Because if we don't give it a community or something better, then I think we just kind of leave people hanging that might think differently than us. Well, I would never underestimate the power of just doing it yourself. Like, What I hear oftentimes in my own head and other people is they always think that they don't matter. They're Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, that's too small and I don't matter. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I get these little messages where people are like, man, Diana, that's cool. Or I see you. I actually got a message from a friend from Haiti and I've been volunteering there off and on since the earthquake. And I was like, and she was like, hey, girl, I see you. You're doing good stuff. And I was like, what? Because Haiti is really tough in the last couple of years. Like even right. for them, historically, it is so hard. If you have your, if you have friends in Haiti, like pray for them and send them money. It is so tough right now. So I think that like never underestimate the fact that you just showing up yourself is going to be the new community and it is mm-hmm. going to give people hope and an example. Yeah. So do yeah. it yourself and then invite someone else to come with you because nobody can 
start doing something on their own or without seeing somebody else do it. Mm. Um, it doesn't have to be big, but I think we all are waiting for some magical thing and it's us yeah. like just starting. Like I just started volunteering at this place and I realized it's been four years and I, in my head, I'm like, Oh, I just started, but it was my birthday four years ago. And I was super like nervous about it. And I felt really awkward and stupid. It was four years ago. What if I had just thought, Oh, just little old me. Yeah. Four years. You know? So I, whew, I feel like we could, there's so much I want to learn from you. Where can we continue following you um, and hearing about how you are? We, we talked about a little bit. We talked about this a little bit before in our in our warm up when we were getting ready to begin recording. I look at you, Diana, and I think you are a practitioner of peacemaking. Um, and so I would love to encourage anyone that I meet to continue following you. So where can we find you online? And then after you answer that, I would love for you to share with us what's giving you hope right now. Like you talked a little bit about like the hardware store and that surprising, like, oh yeah, go ahead, hang that up. Like that would be like a glimmer of hope for me. But like, what are some other things that are giving you hope in the midst of this midterm election season? So where can we find you? What's giving you hope? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram at Diana Ostrike, um, but I do the Waging Peace Project. So um, that you can have me come, I speak, and I do it with my friend Sadia, who's a super fun, um, one of my really, she's one of my heroes, another peacemaker, and we come anywhere and everywhere um, and do workshops and events and speaking because this is everywhere, like middle schools, high schools, elementary schools, universities, everywhere, um, because all the stuff that has happened the last couple of years, this is how we put our stake in the sand and say, this year is going to be better. And it is going to be better, but we got to talk about it and we got to decide how we want to show up together differently. Um, so, and that's at my website, dianaostrike.com. It's called the Waging Peace Project. So bump on over there, get on my um, email list because, and you can get the first chapter of my book for free on my website as a little thank you. It's a great book, by the way, everyone listening in. Uh, John endorsed. Oh, good. You bet. So shoot good. it too. Um, so what's given me a big time amount of hope is I just did a keynote speech at a, le- at a local college. And I'm telling you that people are ready for this year to be different. And I talked about the power of belonging based a lot about my basic training experience because basic training was people from all across the U.S. And let me tell you, we wore the same uniform, but we had zero uniformity in some of the most polarizing political things people are voting on today. Abortion, gun responsibility, politics, and like LGBTQT inclusion and immigration. So I'm Mm -hmm. telling you, if we could like live together, work together, put our lives in each other's hands and have zero uniformity in Mm -hmm. some of this stuff, and we all had a lot of life baggage, came from different places, different education, and we could like achieve and perform together and have high morale, then I know we can rebuild. Across all of these lines of difference, when we choose to belong to each other, 
And we don't have to fundamentally change who we are, but we can make space to belong to each other. And we need it for our kids going to school together. We need it on our college campuses because if we don't, there will be extremism. And I believe we can disrupt the violence before it happens. So that's what Mm. I'm hyped about. Like when I gave this talk, I'm like, I'm excited about this year. Like I think it's going to be different. Mm. So, yeah. uh, I'm excited to do this talk and I'm excited uh, because 9-11 is coming. And I also think that we can talk about how we can remember that with belonging and changing the narrative on that. So I don't know. I'm kind of excited about this year. Since I did that talk with these teachers, I'm just kind of hyped. Now I'm excited. Yes. (laughs) Love that. Well, Diana, I just adore you. We just adore you. Thanks you guys. for your life. We are grateful. We it's are. A gift. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, you guys. All right. So, Diana. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. What a woman. Jeez. I know. What a woman. Um, what? Like, just what a teacher. She just lives in such an authentic way. And she's so convinced. Like I said in the intro, like she is a convinced peacemaker because she disarmed her gun and chose not to kill someone. She's so convinced. And it's just, oh my gosh, it's just impressive. And it really makes me, as somebody who has been doing this work for a long time, just kind of be a little more, I don't know, convinced myself. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm not often speechless, but after that conversation, mm-hmm. I'm still processing a lot of what she said. And a lot of people that are convinced are jerks. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Like if you if you kind of think you know things and you want to just tell other people what you know and so they believe it but she's not a jerk she's she's convinced in this like very compelling like oh my gosh I need to listen to it she holds this authority because of her lived experience and her open heart that is is really compelling and invitational um but also pretty radical I mean she's asked like it's radical at its most disarming her own weapon in a war zone like that could cost her her life uh, but also in how we disarm ourselves from the violence in our everyday life so we can be part of God's work for peace. Uh, yeah. Hold on one second. Yeah. Teach, we're still recording. Like five, five, ten more minutes. Can you go upstairs? Or Thank you. God bless you. Sorry, sorry Kip. <laughs> uh... um, yeah, no, you're 100% right. And I think that... Okay, so what I loved about our conversation with her was that she kept bringing it back to the fact that we are in community with each other. Mm-hmm. We belong to each other. I will not kill another person. Like there is this deep other centeredness about yeah. the way she talks about peacemaking that um, I think is exactly what we need as we enter into the midterm election season. Yeah. Like, yes, we're going to the, we're going to, vote based on our core convictions and how we want to see our our society formed how we want to live in society 
But like at the at the core of how we're talking about politics, it's an other centered yeah. practice. We are yeah. voting for the sake of the usness, for the other, yeah. for the community. And I think Diana and every aspect of her story and what she brought to us was bringing us back to that. Like we're doing That's this good. for each other, right? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And she talked about, um, speaking of the usness, she's calling us away from some kind of allegiance to a, uh, a partisan identity or a cultural identity. Like it, it's not that we don't each have our unique identities, but she said, uh, people require allegiance. And if you don't give it to them, you won't belong. In other words, when mm. people try to like presume your identity on you outside of our usness, then get ready to not feel like you like to, to be, an outcast. Uh, and that hurts. And I think we need to be honest about that. Like, it's not easy to say yes to this way of life, to these convictions, to being friends across borders and boundaries where we can, uh, because it's not going to happen the way some people want it to. And when they don't, they're going to, they're going to shut you out. And so how are we showing up for each other? So we have belonging here. Um, we're going to run into some pain along the way. Yeah. Like her story of even her friend, from Haiti being like, I see you. I think that that if any of our listeners take anything from this conversation, which you will take so much from this conversation, but I think that that reminder to encourage each other as long as it's called today, you know, that that, that invitation from scripture to be encouragers. I, I think that it's really important for us to encourage each other along the way. But like, mm-hmm. yes, you're doing this peacemaking work. Mm-hmm. This can be lonely. This can be hard. You're doing, you're, you're showing up. I think we need more, more of us showing up and saying, yes, I see you. I bless you in that. Yeah. Yeah. And she really sent us, commissioned us towards that at the end when she's like, people want to see change. They're ready for something different. And it's us, Yeah, you know, and say, it's time to show up tangibly, locally, really practically, uh, which I am really grateful for. Yeah. So I was trying to think about a practice, like what is something that I'm going to do coming out of my conversation with um, Diana that like helps me kind of be aware of like my heart and also the relational piece. So like what kind of heart am I bringing into this? My relations, how am I connected with people? And then systemic, like I was trying to think like, is there something? And I read, I was, I've been reading a lot of tweets about the loan forgiveness and how a lot of people mm. are feeling around it. And I know in our conversation with Dominique Gilliard, he brought that up. Yep. And um, one response I heard from somebody was that we are surrounded by systems that are paid for by other people. Like we are, we're t- are, we experience the life we experience because we all collectively pay for water and sewage and roads and all these things. And that made me want to enter into a practice of gratitude for the next couple of days of as I move through my day, being aware of how I'm able to function so seamlessly because of the contribution of other people. So yep. like when I get in my car, I have gas in my car because politic politicians have worked hard to negotiate the price of the gas, but then also like roads have worked, roads work because trucks are on those roads delivering the gas to my gas station. And then there's, you know, like I just wanted, so I'm inviting everyone to just pick one part of your day, one thing that you do in your day, whether it's getting gas, filling up your sink to wash your dishes or to take a bath 
go for a walk, like pick some aspect of your life if you live in America and think about all of the different systems and people that had to work together to make that one moment for you happen and offer gratitude to God for all the systems and the people involved. Remembering that we are interconnected and that we are benefiting from the work of so many people and so many systems working as they should. So that's your practice for this week. Beautiful. I won't turn on the sink in the same mentality the rest of the week. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Okay, as we say every week, um, we encourage you to go to the show notes and also on the website and grab the free PDF, which has a practice guide built uh, out of these conversations specific to this midterm season on peace and politics that talk about peacemaking from a a personal level, uh, interpersonal level, and a systemic level. So jump in and get that. We're grateful you've been with us. Uh, We leave you with this. May we be willing to disarm our weapons and our hearts to more fully display love in our world. Thanks for being with us.